Well, good morning. Uh, it is so good to be here. I've been excited about it since uh, David invited me a couple of weeks ago, um, a month or so ago. Uh, so like Omar said, I serve as the pastor of organizational life at Heritage Park Baptist Church. And when I say that, uh, I usually get a, what? Response. Uh, what that means is, I think I'm the only person in the world with that title, but I oversee our adult education uh, and then also um, a lot of the operational, the facilities, the finance, kind of that back-end stuff that helps the church uh, fulfill our mission. So uh, that is my normal Sunday, but this Sunday I have the pleasure to open the Word of God uh, with you guys. But just a little bit more about me, so I'm not a, just a stranger up here talking to you. Uh, I've been married for the past 10 years. Um, with my wife, Andrea, and we are currently in the midst of raising uh, a little three-and-a-half-year-old son. Uh, so that keeps us very, very busy, and I'm sure many, if not most of you, uh, have been in that life stage that we are in now, uh, chasing around a little one, and, and every kid is different, right? But what we've found is that uh, 70, 80 percent of the time, it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. It, he's a joy. He's kind. He's sweet. He's funny, and all these other things, but that other 30, 20% uh, of the time, being a parent feels like uh, you need the same skill set as like an FBI hostage negotiator, right? Um, and the hostage in the situation is uh, everyone in the house's happiness for the evening, including the toddler, and he's just about to blow it all up. Um, but that's just kind of developmentally where he is. He's learning, he's growing, he's getting skills to cope uh, with uh, with different emotions and these different things. And so right now, a big thing we're working on is obedience, right? We're trying to uh, say, hey, uh, you need to obey what mom and dad tell you. And it's fascinating, even in those kind of difficult moments, um, you can see kind of his thought process. You can see him reason uh, in his little three-year-old mind that he knows what we're asking him to do. He also knows the consequences if he chooses uh, not to do it. And you can see him kind of weigh the pros and the cons of his decision. And then sometimes he goes ahead and obeys. And other times uh, he doesn't. And then we have to, to go through that whole uh, consequences of his actions thing. And there are other times that, you know, I found myself in a parent. And this is not a proud parenting moment. But you just really need the obedience. And so you end up resorting to straight bribery. You know, like, hey, if you just hold it together until we finish in Target, we will get something on the way out. We will get a treat. We will get some candy. I just really need uh, for you to cooperate in this moment. And right, that's, that's very uh, short-term parenting because I don't want a child that grows up that only obeys because there's consequences involved or only obeys because uh, there may be a reward in it for him. Um, but right now, as he develops, that's kind of our tools in our tool bag uh, that we hope to, as he grows, continue to, to mold him to shape his character so that he gets to the point where he obeys because it's the right thing to do, because he knows the difference between right and wrong. He obeys because that's the type of man he is growing into. And I think uh, that's kind of the same thing for us as we grow spiritually in Christ, as we mature as Christians. You know, we, God, uh, a lot of people look at the church, look at Christianity from outside the church, and even sometimes within the church, and we think this is just about uh, kind of living up to a certain moral standard, about following a set of rules, uh, about performing to a, a set level. But over and over again throughout Scripture, God shows that he's not just about behavioral modification. He's actually about, through his spirit, the transformation of his people that renews their minds, renews their hearts, and moves them from people that just uh, obey, that follow his will because there's something in it for us or because we're afraid of the consequences, to moves us to people that follow God because our hearts are in line with his. 
And so that's what we're gonna look at uh, this morning in Luke 15. Uh, but before we get there, if you would, just pray with me again. Well, Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather. Uh, thank you to join in person and online to sing truth and be encouraged through that to hear your word, Lord. I pray uh, that your word, as you say, is living and active, that you would use this moment uh, in each of our lives, that your spirit would take the truths that are in scripture and just put them deep in our heart and use it to transform us uh, a little bit more into the image of your son. May this time be helpful to us uh, and may you be glorified in it. Amen. All right, so we'll be in Luke uh, 15, verses 11 to 32. Um, but while you're turning there, if you want to turn there, uh, I'll kind of set the stage a little bit because it's helpful when you're looking at what Jesus says to think about who he is saying it to. And in this instance, we find kind of his audience for this parable in the first two verses of the chapter. Uh, verses one and two, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we've got two distinct groups of people that are in this crowd right now. We have the tax collectors and the sinners. And in short, we can just say that these are the group of people that are making life decisions that puts them outside of the bounds of respectable society. You know, whatever that group is in you that you kind of go, Oh man, I don't know if I want to be associated with them. That's essentially who the tax collectors and the sinners were. And on the flip side, we see the, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're the exact opposite. These are the guys that keep all of the morals of the day. They do everything right according to what society expects. They follow all of the commands of the Old Testament. They, in fact, add commands on to the Old Testament to make sure that they don't even come close to violating God's law. And see, so these are very, very different groups of people, and there's a lot of tension between them. Uh, Jesus actually tells another parable in Luke uh, 18, where he says a, a tax collector and a Pharisee go into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee uh, prays by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Now, can you imagine like hearing, overhearing that from the person beside you in the aisle? You know, you like lean over to your spouse. I think he's talking about us, and she leans back. No, just you. You know, um, this is kind of, that's the kind of tension we're talking about between these two groups. And so Jesus has this mix of people uh, and he launches into really three parables back to back to back. In the first one, he says, there was a shepherd that had 100 sheep and he's missing one. So he leaves the 99, he goes, he searches until he finds the one, he brings it back. And then he, he calls together his friends and his neighbors to celebrate because he had found this valuable possession. And in the second parable, it says, there's a woman that has 10 coins and one is missing. So she rips apart her entire house until she finds it. And as soon as she does, she calls together her friends and her neighbors to celebrate. So both these parables have this in common, right? That, that something that is valuable is lost. And once it is found, uh, it is a time to celebrate. And then Jesus launches into this third parable, the most important one, and he tells a story of a man with two sons. So let's start in verse 11 and read the first part of it. It says this, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a faraway country. And there he squandered his property with reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything." All right, we'll pause there and kind of take this in chunks because it's a big passage of scripture. But what we find is this, you know, the story starts, this parable starts with a man that apparently has some means. He has a, a good bit of wealth. And the younger son uh, decides he wants to opt out of this family, that he's had enough, 
that he doesn't want to be here anymore. He doesn't want to help around the house, help around the, the farm. Uh, he wants to go do his own thing. But it's not just enough that he decides to start off on his own. He wants uh, the share of his dad's property that he would inherit upon his dad's health, or his, sorry, his dad's death. And so he goes and he asks for his dad to give that to him early. Now think about how audacious this request is, right? Think about how that would happen if your son or your daughter came and asked you, hey, will you go ahead and give me everything that you're gonna give me when you pass so that I can go and never see you again and do my own thing? I mean, how's that conversation gonna go? Uh, I know I would go with my dad. It would ruin Thanksgiving in a hurry. Um, But on the flip side, think about as a parent hearing that request and the deep anger and sadness and the wound that that would just inflict, that this relationship is that broken, that this child actually goes to his father and says, Father, I I want out. I never want to see you again. I'm going to go to a faraway land and never come back. But it'd actually be better for me if you were dead. So can we go ahead and act like that's the case? Give me the money that I would get and so I can leave and be done with this. That's essentially what this man requests of his father. And his father, Jesus says, uh, obliges this request that he divides his property and he gives his younger son the money that he would get. And so then you have a young man who is suddenly flush with cash and devoid of responsibility, uh, which always goes so well, right? Um, No, this story begins to play out about like we'd expect. He goes off on his own. He finds a faraway land and he says, squanders his wealth with reckless living. He's just blowing through his money as fast as he can. And then about the time the money runs out, his circumstances change as well, right? It says a severe famine arose in the land. So this son goes from being rich and young, which is a great place to be, a lot of fun, to being broke and hungry. You know, it says he gets in such a bad spot that he hires himself out for the only job he can find, feeding pigs. And then he finds himself not just feeding the pigs, but being jealous of the food that the pigs get to eat. So he's gone from the top of the world having everything he wanted about as low as you can get in a very quick instant. So let's continue picking up in verse 17. It said, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against you and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is kind of the, the second act of this, this story where the son finds himself daydreaming about how great it would be to eat this pig slop. And he, he realizes as he comes to himself and thinks, my father is a generous man. He has hired servants, kind of his lowest level employees have more than enough food. They never go hungry. So kind of this, what am I doing here? I'm gonna go back. He knows I've blown it as a son. Like I, that's over for me because of what I've done. But maybe, just maybe, my father will take me back as a servant so at least I can put food on the table. So he comes up with this plan and he begins to journey home, you know, kind of reverse this far journey that he had taken. And I would just imagine that along the way, he's rehearsing, you know, what words did you put together to ask forgiveness from the person that you wounded so deeply? What uh, 
how do you structure that? What do you say? What, what do you, uh, how do you plead your case? And along the way, just thinking through what, all the what-if situations. What if this doesn't work? What if he won't even see me? What if he sends me away? What, what next? And the story says that as he draws near, his son or his father sees him while he was still a ways off. And I just imagine this playing out, the son tired, hungry, beat up, just putting one foot in front of another, trying to finish this journey and his father spotting him and just taking off, running at a dead sprint and getting to him and embracing him and kissing him. And it says the fathers uh, saw him and felt compassion on him. And the word compassion is kind of that uh, gut-wrenching feeling. Have you ever felt that? It's not just a kind of a mental thing. It's a physical response that, you know, we say that your heart goes out to somebody. You feel it in your bones. And that's what leads him to just begin to sprint to get there to welcome his son back. And when they, they embrace and the father kisses him and the son begins this speech, right, that he had been practicing the whole way home. He says, uh, Father, I have sinned before heaven and against you. And then what is the response that his father gives him in this moment? He doesn't bat, browbeat him. He doesn't say, you're right, you messed up so bad, we need to talk about this. Uh, let me tell you about exactly everything you did wrong. His father doesn't say, oh, you know, son, don't, don't worry about it. It really wasn't that bad. Um, you were young. People make mistakes. No, the father doesn't respond at all. In fact, the son doesn't even finish the speech he intended. You know, the son's trying to give this heartfelt apology, and what we see the father do is, doing is talking to servants, which where are the servants? Presumably back where the father started running from. And so it seems the father, in this overjoyed excitement to see his son, embraced his son, kissed him, hugged him, and then, as the son starts to apologize, the father's already running back up the road, party planning. Bring the best food, bring the best clothes. See, in this moment, we have two people with radically different experiences of this situation. You know, the son is standing there thinking, man, I've blown it so bad. Just under this grace of, I, he knows I've done so much wrong, and I don't deserve to be here. But his father is just thinking, my son is home. It is time to celebrate. This is a man who had found a treasured possession that was lost. You know, I wonder in all of the scenarios that that son must have played out in his head as he walked back home, if he ever wondered, what if I'm completely forgiven? What if I'm welcomed back as a son instantly? What if he treats me as if I'd never left? You know, and if, if we stopped here at this amazing moment, this would be just a, an incredible story of forgiveness and grace extended by the Father to the Son. But there's one more scene. Uh, so let's pick up in verse 25. It says this, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, you ever use language like that like about a kid? This, your daughter, your son? Son of yours? Um, the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
So this is the part in the story where we finally meet the elder brother. He hasn't shown up until now. And Jesus tells us uh, his response to this, this news of his brother returning home. See, up until this time in the story, at least on this day, he w- was where he always was. He was out in the field working, doing what he was supposed to do to, to take care of the family business. And he comes in, and it says he hears the sounds of music and dancing. Um, I don't know what the sound of dancing sounds like, but that must be a pretty good party um, when it's that loud. And he hears this and goes, okay, something's going on. So he does what probably most of us would do if we kind of get to our house and we're like, oh, something's going on here. I don't really know what it is. He kind of finds someone and goes, hey, what am I about to walk into? And this person says, your brother's home and your dad is throwing this lavish party. And rather than being overjoyed that his long-lost brother has returned, he's angry, he's frustrated, he's resentful. And it says he, he just stands outside until his dad comes in and invites him, tries to bring him in. He won't participate, and his father has to come out and plead. And his response is this, I have done everything right, and you've never thrown me a celebration. And this son of yours, who did everything wrong, shows back up, and this is what he gets. He gets this massive celebration, and this is the father, just like he did with the younger son, responds tenderly and says, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours, but because your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found, we should celebrate. And for the, the longest time when I would read this story, I focused pretty much exclusively on the interaction between the, the younger son and the father. Like, to me, that was the critical piece of the story, uh, and that this, was, this interaction was almost like a tack-on or an appendix, uh, kind of like the end credit scene of a Marvel movie. You know, you could stick around for it, or you could leave. It's kind of neat, but uh, didn't actually affect the, the core of the movie you had just watched. And then something was pointed out to me uh, that really kind of hit this home as being just as important, just as critical to what Jesus is trying to get across here. And I think even the name of the story lends to that, right? We call it the prodigal son. We, we focus on that one. Um, but see, what we find about this older brother when we look closely is, you know, he did everything right, at least to hear him tell it, right? I've never disobeyed you. I've always done what you've asked. Um, he's the obedient child. He's the good kid, especially when you compare him to his other brother. Um, he's doing what he's supposed to do. But then the situation occurs uh, that we really get to see his heart in it. Um, so uh, I have, I've worn an Apple Watch since they came out pretty, pretty uh, a couple months after they came out a while back. Um, and this is the original one. I've had it since then. Last year, um, I was gifted the new version um, so why am I wearing the original one if I had that new one? Well, because I think it was on Monday, I was sitting at the dinner table working on my computer, and you know, I check the time every now and again, and then I look down, and one time I check it, and one of the corners is crushed to the point that there's like three cracks going all the way down the screen, and it's flaking all around the rest of the screen. And so I literally just stared at it for like two minutes because it looked like I had taken it off and just smashed it as hard as I can into the table. I don't even know if I could do that without like a hammer. And I was just in disbelief. I wore it for about two days thinking that I was going to look down and it was going to be fixed because I was thinking, I was just sitting at the table. Like, what in the world did I do? How did I catch it, you know, that I shattered this screen and ruined this product? And the only thing I can figure out is that I just happened to catch it at the right angle with the right pressure in the right spot that hit, you know, an imperfection, a weakness in the glass, and that just shattered the entire thing, made it unusable. Um, And I think that's kind of this situation in this older brother's life is this brother coming home and the father showing this party hits the crack in his external uh, 
veneer that he shows that I'm the good kid, I've got, I do all the right things, and it reveals what's actually been going on in his heart the entire time. Because that while he's been going through the motions and doing the things that he thought he should do, that his heart really wasn't aligned with his father's heart at all. And we see this because when the, son show, when the younger son shows up and the father throws this party, his immediate response to finding out is anger and resentment. You know, he, he says, why is he resentful? He says, I've served my father all these years, and he's never done anything like this for me. And in fact, he's angry about the lavish spending. You see, he pointed out, he goes, you know, this son of yours squandered his inheritance with prostitutes, and yet he comes back and you kill the fattened calf for him? Because all that was left of the father's estate should be his one day, right? It was his inheritance that was left after the, son, the younger son took his. And so he sees the father throwing this party, and he goes, you're using what should be mine to celebrate this kid that has messed up so badly. And what's critical is what we see is the younger brother at the first part of the parable and the older brother at the end of the parable both actually want the same thing. They're not after a relationship with the father. They're not after his joy. They're around for what the father can give them. They're after his things. They're after the blessings that he can bestow on them. You know, the, the younger brother goes about it by asking for his inheritance and says, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to call my own shots. The elder brother stays home, does everything that's asked, is the model son, because he thinks that's the way to get him what he most desires. And we focus on the prodigal so often, but the twist of the parable, I think, that Jesus uh, puts before us is that the, this man starts the parable with two lost sons, both alienated from him. It's just a lot easier to tell with the first one than it is the second. And he ends the story with one being found, one inside the house celebrating, and one still standing on the outside, invited in, but not acting on it. Like the last two parables, something valuable was lost and has been found, and friends and neighbors gather to celebrate it, but as the, the parable closes, this older brother is having none of it. And it's clear that this parable is an analogy for his audience, right? The, the father in the story is uh, our heavenly father, God. Um, the younger brother is the tax collectors and the sinners that you can just look at them and tell that they are far away, that they're making choices uh, that do not line up with anything that God has called them to, but that are also the crowd that are listening to Jesus, intrigued by his message, and many responding in faith and repentance. And so the first part of this parable, parable focuses in on how God responds to the sinner that comes home. And then the elder brother represents the scribes and the Pharisees that externally do everything that they're supposed to, but their hearts are far from God's heart. Elsewhere, uh, Jesus describes them as whitewashed tombs. He said, you look great from the outside, but inside all you will find is death and decay. You know, Jesus and God can see through just our external actions and see into our hearts and recognize the motivations that lead us to do the things that we do. And both of these groups are equally far from God, but both of them are equally invited in to the celebration in responding to God. And the parable ends without a resolution. It just kind of hangs, this invitation hangs in the air. And when I read it, I, I see it as almost like a, a tragic story because we don't know if this older brother responds or if he continues to resist and to be uh, alienated from his father and the family. And it's nearly tragic, uh, a, a tragic story for us as well, because if we're honest, 
We each, by nature or by circumstance, uh, fall into one of these two characters. We can see ourselves in them. Some of us, we uh, spend our life going our own way, calling our own shots. We think, this is the way that I'm going to get the best life. I'm going to um, get what I want by just taking it and making, deciding how I live for myself. And others of us are rule keepers. We follow the rules. We do what's expected of us. Maybe we even grow up in church and around the things of God, but we never actually respond in faith to God. We just think, I'm going to earn God's acceptance by doing all of these things for him. But we never actually put our faith and our trust in Jesus. Just like my three-year-old right now is obeying because either he knows there's a consequence involved or because there's a reward for him. Sometimes that's why we obey, because we think there's, we avoid consequences or we get rewards from God rather than saying, no, it's faith in Christ that is the stance, the, the passage through which God accepts us. That's very different strategies, but both are just the outworking of the same root heart condition which scripture teaches is at first alienated from God. But see, it's not a tragic story for us because there's a third son actually in this story, right? That's standing in the background, the one that's actually telling the parable. See, Jesus, the son of God, was sent by the father to seek and to save the lost. And he's the son that didn't resent the generosity that the father extended to us wayward, uh, wayward people. He made us, it says, instead of that, he made us co-heirs of Christ through his death on the cross, by which uh, he bore the burden for our sins and he bore our shame, that he didn't resent our return home, but he actually went and sought us while we were enemies of God so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of the Father. He came so we didn't have to rely on our own performance, good or bad, to be related to God and in right standing before him. And that it's through that, through that amazing grace poured out on us through Christ that the Spirit is at work in us to transform our hearts so that we love the things of God, to transform our minds so that we think differently than we did before, to transform what we value so that obedience isn't motivated by what it earns for us, but our obedience comes from a heart and a person that is more and more in line with the will of God and the heart of God that the scripture says that God is transforming us through his spirit more into the image of his son, that as we grow with him, we become like him. And that plays out in our behaviors. It plays out in our actions. And so God, or Jesus tells this parable to the, the diverse crowd in front of him in hopes that all would hear this invitation, that both the tax collectors and the sinners and the scribes and the Pharisees would hear this and respond, that they would come from death to life no matter where they started the day. And that invitation is still extended to us, that the way to God isn't to self-actualize by making our own way or to keep all the rules and do all the things that we're supposed to do. It's faith in Christ and his work on our behalf that opens the door to come back into a relationship with God. And if we've never done that, and I'd encourage you today to, to respond in faith to Christ. Maybe you've been in church, maybe you've been far from church, but come, respond. That's all he asks. It don't, it's not complicated. We just turn to God in faith and say, God, please show me your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness. It's mine in Christ. And if we have placed our faith in Christ, if we've already done that, which I assume in a church um, many of us have, then what's our response? Man, I think our response is just to reflect on this. We can never reflect on this enough. We can never um, 
consider this enough. You know, I think especially this week, uh, as we go towards Thanksgiving, we set this day aside every year to, to celebrate, to reflect on what we're thankful for. And this year, that's gonna be, for many of us, a challenge because the things that we're so thankful for, uh, we're so often thankful for, may be lacking in our lives, right? The chance to gather with families, the chance um, to have financial security in our job, to have um, that kind of steady income that provides for our family, Um, maybe our health, maybe a loved one. All of these things this particular year have been affected. Um, I know it's a small thing, but even for my family on Friday, something we'd been looking forward to for two, three years got canceled, and it was just another, okay, well, that's what this year is. Um, But one thing, if we are in Christ, that we can always be thankful for is that if we are in Christ, that we are secure, that our acceptance by God isn't dependent on our performance. And this guards us from both pride and despair when we blow it because we know that God is for us and that through our circumstances, he is at work in our life to make us into the type of people that obey from our hearts. And finally, um, I think as we pivot, they mentioned earlier, into the season of Advent that's coming, a, a time of waiting on Christ to come and reflecting on that, we can say all of these themes of Advent find their source in Christ. He is our hope. He gives us hope. We love because Christ has first loved us and pursued us while we were his enemies. We have peace with God and with each other because Christ has reconciled us to God and to each other. And finally, joy. That Christ is the source of all joy. And it's unshakable that no matter what comes, no matter what this year has done or whatever may come next, we can have joy because we know we are secure in the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that that is true. Thank you that you um, are a God that extends grace, not just to the prodigal. You are a God that extends grace uh, to the rule keeper that does everything uh, that looks good, but under the surface is motivated um, by a heart that is not like yours. Lord, thank you for the grace that extended to us through your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. May we respond to that. May we receive that. May we be found in you. And that through that, may you in your spirit transform our lives so that we uh, obey from a heart that loves and wants to pursue you. Amen.